The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Father, I, I ask that you would be so gracious with us this morning and that you would help us and maybe for some, for the first time, enable us to see this picture of our eternal home. It is so glorious in your presence that it should make everything on this side seem strangely dim and cause each of us to long for that day when we enjoy the new heavens and the new earth and the new city with you. I ask, Spirit, that you would do only what you can do, and that's reorient our hearts and minds, that we might live as Christians now with our eyes fixed on the new heavens and the new earth. Encourage us this morning with this vision that you gave to John so long ago. Cause it to captivate us truly captivate us through and through, that we might be a people now set apart for your glory, living very differently than the world lives, being a brilliant testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would this morning cause us to worship Jesus for the work that he did to make this all possible. This hope is a result of His work. And because of that, I pray you would increase our love for Him. And in doing so, Father, we will be more faithful followers today and every day until you call us home or until you come and bring the new heavens and the new earth. We praise you for being the God that you are. Enable us to worship now through the proclamation of your word and the gospel of your Son, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're at the end of the story. No, 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 no. That's not an all. It's so good. We're at the end of the redemptive story. And we're going to spend the next several weeks, and I'm not going to rush this, because I want to sit on this, and I want to savor it, and I want you to savor it. Because the more that we do, the more we will live more faithful lives now until that end comes. The title of the sermon is Looking for Home, and you'll understand why I titled that in light of the passage today. The COVID pandemic, it revealed a lot about American culture. In fact, sociologists have had a field day for the last few years studying the phenomena that we saw take place over that two-year period of time. They discovered a few things. They, they, they know now that Americans, we are a very, very low-risk people that are terribly afraid to die. We know that. We know that we have an unhealthy propensity to listen to public officials, even when we know they are wrong or lying to us. And we know that many Americans are seemingly okay living and working in total isolation. It's brought that out. But one of the lesser talked about revelations that came out of the pandemic that I think is worth noting is the desperate search that people had to find a place to call home. 
not just a place that we live, not just a location, but home as you think about it in the context of Scripture. During the pandemic, tens of thousands of people and families uprooted and left and established new permanent homes in different places. In March of 2020, at the very start of the pandemic, and in December of 2020, at the height of the first winter of the pandemic, each of those months saw over 300,000 people in this country picking up and finding a new place to call home. That was a 14% increase from the previous year. According to Pew Research, listen to this, 28% said they moved because they were afraid of contracting COVID-19. They were looking for a safer place to live. 20% said they moved because they wanted to be closer to family. They wanted to be near the people that they loved. And 18% of those who moved permanently said they were looking for a better way of life, financial prosperity. Such large-scale movements should not surprise us as Christians. We have been on the move since Genesis chapter 3. Ever since we've been cast out of the garden and separated from the presence of God, mankind has been always searching for a home that placed those people and that prosperity that we long for and cannot seem to find on this side of heaven. Well, I, have, I have such good news for you this morning. I have glorious news for you this morning because that search is over for you in Christ according to this passage. The final judgment has been complete. We know that. Satan, the beast, the false prophet, death, Hades, and all those who remained in rebellion against God have been thrown into, locked eternally into the lake of fire. And the final chapter of God's redemptive story, because of that, now can unfold. And it is such a glorious end to a most glorious story. In fact, it's the ending that your heart has been waiting for your entire life. Even before you knew Christ. This is the ending that you want. It is the full restoration of all that God has made. It is the complete renewal of a place and a people and a way of life just as God had ordained and created us to live in the very beginning before sin entered. And this morning, as we consider the end of God's story and the radical, maybe I'll say super radical, or super-duper radical blessings that come to God's people, the church, as we consider it in light of this passage, I want you to not only be encouraged, and I pray that you are, to stay that course all the way to the end. My prayer has been these past two weeks that the promise of this new dwelling place with God in a new heaven and a new earth in a new city will result in you not living as a Christian homesteader, but as a Christian missionary. I want to reorient your Western mind. I want you to stop trying so hard to make a permanent, forever, eternal home here. And I want us to receive this message and be encouraged to be missional and sojourners in this foreign land. That is my hope. That is my prayer. I hope that this text and God's Word will move you in that direction by His grace. So I want you to be encouraged to be more of a missionary than a homesteader by considering three things in the passage. Number one, the Christian's new home. That's our new place. Number two, the Christian's new family. That's the church with God forever. 
And number three, the Christian's new way of life, it's prosperity that it goes beyond your wildest dreams, my beloved. The theme of the sermon is simple. Live on this earth with your eyes on the new earth. Live right now on this earth with your eyes fixed on the new earth that God will bring when Christ comes. Are you encouraged yet? (laughs) Okay. I hope you will be. Point number one, the Christian's new home. Look at verse one. This is John speaking. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So we know in Genesis chapter one, we know in the very beginning, God did what? He created all that is seen and unseen. Everything that is created was created by God and for God. And so what John sees here, he looks upon all that God had made on that sixth day when God said what? It is good. Not good as in, we say good as in it's, it's, it's okay. It's not excellent. It's just good. That word used in the context of Genesis was when God made the heavens and the earth before sin entered, it was good as in perfect. It was holy. It was sinless. It was without flaw. It was a perfect creation made by a perfect God for man to live in and what? And worship him. But according to Genesis 3, we know that man's rebellion, man's sin brought destruction and ruin into God's good creation. It brought death and disease. We experienced that. It brought brokenness and pain. We know that. It brought sorrow and suffering and all the good that God had made. And we, we get that. We don't have to talk a lot about the suffering and pain and struggle of living in a fallen world because you go through it every single day. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul revealed it's not just man who suffers. All of the earth, all of the creatures are impacted by our sin. Listen to this. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. For the creation waits with eager longing to be set free from its bondage to corruption. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth from Genesis chapter 3 until now. All of creation has been suffering under the weight of sin, not just mankind. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, man has been trying to find a place, a home, where there isn't so much suffering and so much death and so much chaos a place where we can be more successful, a better home. We have tried different governments. We have tried different economic systems. We have tried different educational structures. We've had new laws and new regulations. But I would argue the casual observer for the past 6,000 years can say that all these attempts have been futile. We have not successfully found that place and those people and that prosperity that God has designed us for. Always wanting, always longing, always searching for that home that we cannot find. Thankfully, my beloved, part of God's redemptive plan is making a new heaven and a new earth for you to live on for his glory again. John writes, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now this idea of of renewal or restoration, we see that permeate the Jewish worldview in the Old Testament. God had promised through the prophet Isaiah, God said, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. 
And so we see all the way up to the beginning of the New Testament this promise of God doing some radical, supernatural transformation of the heavens and earth and all that he created. And that actually moved its way into the New Testament as well. And the early church embraced this thought. Second Peter chapter 3, the apostle writes, Long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment. In other words, there's going to be a day when all that we know to be true in that which God has made will be utterly changed. Now, the great debate on this for centuries is, well, how is it going to be changed? Is it going to be annihilated and then something come that's truly new? Or is it going to be renewed, transformed? Um, I'm, I'm going to argue that camp. I've, I've always held that position. I'm not an annihilationist. I believe that God's going to renew that which he already made. And, and I believe that for a couple of reasons. Paul, he talks about the creation longing to be set free, not destroyed. That would be contrary to Paul's teaching. But even more specifically here, the, the, the word for Greek, the, the word for Greek, there you go, the word for Greek, the word for new in the Greek, there are two primary words. There's naos, which means new in time. So if you have a baby, you have a new baby, or if you, if you buy a new car, it's a new car to you, made in time. Um, if Lori and I were to purchase a piece of land and, and build a brand new home on it, that would be a, a, a naos, a neo-home. We, we hear that term neo-orthodoxy, uh, neo-evangelism things like that. Um, but the other term that's used, and the one that's used here, is kairos. And, and the reason I'm making this distinction, that's not new in time, that's qualitatively new. That's transformed. That's a renewal process. And that's the word that's used here in, in this passage and in 2 Peter chapter 3. So if that, that house that Lori and I built on this property, if we, if we neglected it over years, someone would come in and they would redo it. They would, they would make it a kairos house. They would make it a renewed house. Not new in time, but new in transformation. It's the same term that the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he talks about Christians being born again. And you become what? A new creature. Well, you say, well, how do I become a new creature? I don't literally die and then a brand new person comes in, right? You become new by the old passing away and the new coming. And so the, the idea here, and I hope this is encouraging to you, is the heavens and the earth that we now see will, will be transformed utterly into a, a place that you will see and experience as being like new because it will be so different than how it is right now, qualitatively different. And that's why John is able to say in verse 1, and the sea will be no more. Now listen, this is really important. It's not because the heavens and the earth will be waterless. That would, be, that would just be weird, I think. And I think very depressing. I mean, I live 10 minutes from the ocean. I can't imagine there being no ocean on the new earth. Um, and I, and that, the reason that I don't think that John is teaching that is because we know that in John's day, the, the sea represented chaos and evil and death. Right? And so what John is saying here is not that the, the new heavens and new earth will be without water. He's saying it will be with what, without what? Without chaos, without evil, without death. It will be a place so glorious in purity and beauty, so safe for all who dwell there, so distinctly different than the fallen world in which we experience now, you will say it is new. It is like new because it will be. And so... Your final destination, if you're in Christ, is not some 
transcendent heavenly realm where you're floating in a bodyless state. We have a lot of bad theology on um, what our end looks like. Your, your end's here. And I hope that doesn't discourage you. You say, I'm going to be in Silicon Valley for eternity? That it's not going to be the Silicon Valley that you know. It won't be the California, the United States, or any other place like you know. It'll be familiar and yet distinctly different. Your eternal dwelling place will be here on a new earth in a new cosmos with the living God. And just as God made things in the beginning and he said it is good because it was without sin, so too will the new heavens and the new earth be good. So good because they will be without any sin or evil or death. Now there are several implications that come from this. Way too many to cite in the sermon, but I want to give you two just to think about. If this is the new, the new heaven and the new earth will be here in this place, then, then first I think that it should compel Christians of all people to be conscientious of the place in which we live, that we should give some serious thought to this place and being good stewards of this place, knowing that this is where we're going to dwell with God in Christ forever and ever. Not in a fallen world, but in a renewed world. And it means that, I I think it should mean that we should do our best, again, of all people, to take care of it. I think we should be smart about this. I know that there's a, there's a tendency for Christians to, be, to swing that pendulum away from what we would consider crazy environmentalism and, and become actually destructive to the command to subdue the earth and be good stewards of it. And I think this should bring us back to that. If this is going to be our home and God's going to renew it, then I think that we should consider our habitat. I think we should be thoughtful of the animals that surround us. I think we should consider the waterways that will be here in the new heaven and the new earth. I think we should think about the skies that supply our air, the oceans, the forests, the mountains, the deserts that will one day become our new home. Now, I don't want to push you out into some environmental strange place, um, but I think we have a course correction that we as a people, as God's people, should strive to be good stewards of what God has made because what he has made is going to be renewed, and we're staying here. That makes sense, right? There's a second thing, though, that I think this is going to be a little more challenging for us. If God's going to supernaturally make the heavens and the earth new on that last day and make this the safe place for his people to dwell with him, then I think that Christians can live differently here in this world. I think that we, again, of all people, that we don't have to work so hard and fight so hard to make an eternal forever home now. We hear that term a lot, right? With HGTV, everybody talks about they're looking for their forever home. Every time I hear that, I think, that's such a strange statement to make. I know they don't mean literally, but in some cases, they're striving for that, right? This is the place where we're going to dwell forever, or at least until we die, Um, if we, if we believe that this passage is teaching this extraordinary truth that Christ will come and, and make all things new, and that's only a matter of years for us, I love how we had a chance to sing in, in moments, this passing moments for us, and we are going to, if we believe what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, that we're going to inherit what? We're going to inherit the whole earth. It's going to be yours in Christ. So much for your little plot of land, right, that you're so desperate to get or that house to build then we don't have to, my beloved, as Christians, we don't have to spend all of our time and money and resources pursuing a forever home now that's given to you in Christ. We don't have to listen to the culture. Now, I'm not suggesting that homemaking 
or creating a safe place for your family to live is unbiblical. I, I would say, of course, that. But we, we push these boundaries in the West, and instead of homemaking in safe place, we want more. We want what the culture tells us. We, we want that, that large house, that 100 acres, that pool, and that country club membership, which you're never going to get in Silicon Valley, so you move out of state, right? And what we're really doing is we're building our own kingdoms now, aren't we? And that's what we're doing. We're creating kingdoms here on earth rather than working for the kingdom that is to come. How different, my beloved, if we said, you know what? I'm not going to try to build my little mini empire. I'm not going to put all my time and energies on getting that job and that promotion and that money to buy that house and have this homesteading mentality. Instead, I'm going to use my resources to focus on people. I'm going to focus on people in my family, wife, children, grandchildren, and I'm going to raise them up in the faith so they might know the Lord. I'm going to focus on people in my church family so that I can bless them and disciple them and grow them in the faith. I'm going to focus on people in my mission field who are right outside my home who do not know the Lord. And on that day, they will not know the new city of Jerusalem. They will only know the lake of fire. I do believe that Satan has cast a great spell upon the Western world. I believe that we are in hot pursuit of a forever home in this place, even though God has said, I have a forever home for you. I'm making it right now, and I will bring it to you in Christ. Satan knows that if he can get people by the millions chasing after that elusive dream that you cannot get, not simplicity, listen, not simplicity but luxury, not sufficiency but excess, not security but financial riches, he knows that he can detour the church from our primary mission of making disciples, sharing the gospel and making disciples. You remember when Jesus encountered the scribe in Matthew chapter eight? You remember that? The scribe came up to Jesus and he said, listen, he said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus lovingly said, foxes have holes and birds have, and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have places to stay. It meant he was telling this man, you better count the costs of following me. You see, the Son of Man did not spend his entire life seeking his best life now. He wasn't interested in homesteading. He was interested in seeking and saving the lost. And so he says to this man, you can come follow me, but if you're going to follow me, you must know that there is suffering and sacrifice in doing so. That you cannot, Mr. Scribe, make this your eternal home. You cannot live building your kingdom now. If you're going to follow me, Jesus said, you must be homeless on this earth too with a great hope of what? Having a new heavens and a new earth when Christ comes again. It's with this knowledge that I believe God can equip us to live sacrificially as well. To not buy into the cultural lie of building a forever home now. And I'm not just talking about a house. I'm talking about your whole life, your career, your finances, your cars, your house, your neighborhood, the people that you surround yourself with. Kingdom building now is foolish in light of the kingdom that is to come. And if there is a new heaven and a new earth, and Jesus says here, a new city for you, then you can live as a missionary now. You can live as a sojourner, seeing that this is a temporary place. We're sojourning. You're not home yet. So that's, that's the first thing I think that we should take from this. 
The second thing, though, that I think is equally important and should be very encouraging is it's not just this place that God is going to make for you in Christ. It's the family that he is making for you in Christ. Point number two, the Christian's new family. Because, you know, when we, think of, when we think of home, most people don't think of a building or a piece of land. They think of people, don't they? When you say home, people come to mind. Moms, dads, brothers, sisters, aunts, and uncles. It's what populates a home that makes it a home and not a house. Look at verse 2. Your new family. So John said, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now we're going to talk a lot more about this in two weeks because the the latter part of chapter 21 goes into great detail. But we, we have to hit it here because it's in our text for today. So John sees the new heaven and the new earth, and they're coming down. They're going to populate. And then he says, and I, and I see a new city, and it's the, the new Jerusalem. And of course you think, well, that, that has to be in contrast to the city of Babylon. I mean, you've talked a lot about the city of Babylon, right? The city of man that's full of evil and sin and rebellion, which God destroyed and threw into the lake of fire. But unlike the city of Babylon, this, this city is populated by a holy people. Holy as in sacred, as in set apart for God, by God, for God's glory. Now the earthly Jerusalem and the Old Testament, even the New Testament, was known as what? As the city of God. It's where God would come and dwell with his people, Israel, in the temple in Jerusalem. But its presence in the Old Testament always pointed to a heavenly Jerusalem, an eternal Jerusalem. In fact, the, the Apostle Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, he talks about the Jerusalem from above being what? Our mother, right? This, this idea of Jerusalem coming down. And, and we, know that, we know that it's described as a bride. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, um, the author talks about this new Jerusalem as Mount Zion, as the city of the living God, the, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down. So it's both a bride the church, and it's a place, a dwelling place for God to commune intimately with his people like a husband with his wife. Look at verse 3. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne. That, that could be God. It could be a messenger of God. Saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, mankind. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as they're gone. You see, in the garden, God dwelt with Adam and Eve. He, the, the term is tabernacling. That idea of tabernacling is to dwell with. It's to commune with. It's to cohabitate with. In the garden, God was the God to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve were God's people. But once they were cast out of the garden, they were not only homeless, they were separated from God's presence. They were separated from the intimacy they had with God in the garden. But God, by his glorious decree, the redemptive plan was it not to be separated forever. And so we see again and again God teaching that I'm going to come back and I'm going to dwell with you. We first saw it, of course, we saw it in the tabernacle in the desert, did we not? He commanded Moses and the Israelites to build a tent where I will come and dwell with you in your midst. And then after centuries, once they finally made their way into Jerusalem, not David, but Solomon built the temple. And God said, I will come and I will dwell with my people, Israel, in the city of Jerusalem. But the most perfect dwelling of God in man has to be Jesus Christ. 
right? You have the tabernacle and the temple, but the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, God and man becoming one. John chapter one, verse 14, you know this, and the word, that's the son of God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so throughout the entire story of the Bible, you have God dwelling with his people, first in the garden, then in the tabernacle, then in the temple, then in Christ, and then when? Christ rose from the dead, he sent the Holy Spirit for the new tabernacle to become the church. And now the church, you, are the tabernacle of God. So how is that possible? Well, you know how it's possible. When Jesus ascended to the throne, he sent the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in his people. Well, the Holy Spirit is God, and therefore the church now is the dwelling place of God and man on earth, but not, that's not going to be forever, right? The, the new heavens and the new earth will be, this is what John is seeing, the church victorious, being with God, the Father, the Son, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit in the new heaven, the new earth, and this new city. John sees the glory of man living out his purpose, worshiping and serving God, loving and being loved by God. He sees here a picture of this new family and a family that, if, if you've been in a great family, I pray you have, but if, if you've experienced that, it's, it's unlike any family you will know. It is the church family that we have right now it's the fulfillment of the promise that God made all the way back in Genesis chapter 17 to Abraham. He told Abraham, he said, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. Listen to this, for an everlasting possession. And he said, I will be their God. That's the picture of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and the church communing with God forever. He made the same promise to Moses, Exodus 29. He said, I will consecrate the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, and the altar. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. That's the promise, to dwell with us, with no barrier of sin, nothing separating us from the sweet, intimate communion with God and with one another. No need for a tabernacle or a temple in the holy city of God because God is in our presence. And so the voice cries out, He, God, look, look again, He, God, will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Dwelling, cohabitating, radical intimacy, radical harmony between God and His people. And this is the consummation when you think of the consummation of God's redemptive story, it is God now united with his people with no sin and no evil and no rebellion in his midst. Perfect harmony. And it is, my beloved, I would argue, the, it is the greatest blessing of, of these next two chapters. Uh, I don't want to downplay, I, in fact, I, I can't upplay it enough how extraordinary the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem are going to be. You're going to want to be there. You're going to want to live there. You're going to want to dwell there forever. It is beyond your wildest dreams. Whatever, you know, you, we all have pictures of, oh, if I could just, if I could just live here, I could just have that house or that career or that spouse or the, if I could just. It's beyond every just you could possibly think of and infinitely more. But as extraordinary as all that is, it is the presence of God 
that should cause you to rejoice right now. You remember when, when God said to Moses, I'm gonna, you go before me, I'm not going. I'll bring you to the land, I'll deliver you from your enemies, but I'm not going. And Moses pulls a full stop. He says, no, Lord, you must come because Moses understood the most beautiful place to live without the presence of God would be like hell. He understood that. And so God said, I will go too. The greatest blessing of our new, our new home is living with dwelling with, communing, talking to, loving, being loved by God himself. This past week, um, my family had a chance. There's quite a few of us now, a couple more on the way. We had a chance to all live under the same roof for seven days. Um, I would love to say it was all peace and harmony. That wouldn't be true. It was beautiful. It was. But there was a lot of crying of babies and you know, poopy diapers and things like that. <clears throat> Not harmonious at all. But we had such a glorious time. We were eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner together and enjoying each other's company. And the last day, we were getting ready to leave. Abby says, I want to live here. I said, you want to live here? She goes, yeah, I want us to stay together. And I thought, you sweet child. She got it, right? She got the beauty of being with family. Um, and I thought immediately, I was obviously my mind, was like, oh, what's it going to be like for her if she knows Christ? To be with the eternal family of God and with God in the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever. Friends, if, if this does not cause your heart to jump, if this does not cause your affections for God to soar, then I'm either doing a horrible job of teaching this or your heart has drawn cold. This teaching is so over the top. You just need to touch it or taste it to be overwhelmed by it. That's how good it is. And if this vision is true, if this is the picture of our new home and our new forever family, the church victorious with God, then I, I, I believe that there are, I'm gonna give you two again quickly. Um, I believe one, we should be fighting for the preservation of one another. And I think we should also be trying to add to our family. I think that first, if, if our forever family is God and the church in the new heavens and the new earth, I think that we need to be working really, really hard. Now, I want you to listen with all your mics. I don't think that we as a church are doing this very well. I think we should be working really hard to ensure that every one of us makes it. That we do, in fact, persevere to the end. Not by personal will or might or power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of the church that we are really caring for one another. And that means you having an active role in your brothers and sisters' lives, knowing that they're on that narrow path, helping them stay on that narrow path. One of the most horrific thoughts for you, if you really do love your brothers and sisters in Christ here at Christ Community Church, one of the nightmares for you should be coming into the presence of God on that day and looking and not seeing someone and thinking, where are they? Aren't their names written in the book of life? Where are they? And they're not there. That should turn your stomach. It turns mine. It compels me to pray hard. It should compel you to pray hard. It should compel you to ask God to strengthen them and encourage them and keep them on that narrow path of the gospel. It should cause you, I believe, to come alongside of them and teach them and encourage them and maybe rebuke them if necessary if they are in sin. We were never, ever intended to walk this faith alone. Never. 
And we don't do it well in the West. Hebrews chapter 3, you probably remember it. The author said, see to it, brothers and sisters, here's your brother's keeper, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But what? But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And then he says this, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Can you name the people in this church right now that you are watching out for? Can you name them? If you can't name them, you're not watching out for them. Can you name them? Can you name those you're coming alongside, you're calling, you're texting, you're emailing, you're having coffee? Can you name them? And can you name those who are doing it for you? Those that you know say, oh, they, they, they care about my soul. They're not as concerned about breaching some temporary relationship. They really care that I make it all the way in. Well, that's true love, brothers and sisters. You want someone who really loves you, they're gonna be looking out for your soul as long as they're here and you're here. If our future family is God in the church, we should be doing everything we can to make sure that the church that we know makes it. We get there. But there's another piece of this, the makeup of our future family. We should also want to be bigger and I'm not talking bigger as in, you know, let's have a, a big, thriving, you know, multi-site, 2,000-person church. I don't think that's biblical personally. I'm talking about you looking at your mission field and say, I, I want them to be part of this family too. I, I want them to come in. Not only for their sake, not only so they can have the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and God himself, and not the lake of fire. Not only for their well-being, but I, I would argue for... God's glory as well. I mean, the more people saved by God's grace through faith in Christ will be the more people that are, are standing around the throne worshiping God. More glory given to God for his saving grace in their lives for all eternity. And again, that means, my beloved, I believe that instead of trying to build our kingdoms now, we will be more missional in our mindset. We will look around at those in our lives that do not know Christ well. And we will want to share the gospel with them. We'll want to make disciples out of them and bring them into God's family. So this passage, I hope it encourages you not to build your forever home now, but to sacrifice and serve for the eternal home that's promised to you in Christ. Number two, that the hope of our future family should compel us to help each other persevere and to bring more people into the family of God. And I got one more, so don't fall asleep on me. If you're falling asleep now, I, my heart's breaking for you. It really is. Number three, the Christian's new way of life. The prosperity that is promised to you. There's lots of really bad displays of Christianity in the prosperity movement. Making lots of promises about if you follow Jesus now, then you'll be blessed with temporal goods. Um, this is a prosperity, what we get here that makes all of their promises seem hideous. Not only will your new home be in a completely restored heaven and earth, living in the city of God, with God and with the church, but your new way of life in this forever home with your forever family will be without pain, suffering, and death. All that we know and experience in this fallen place, will be no more. Look at verse four. 
John said, he, God, so he's speaking to God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the church. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And I said, no, wait a minute. I remember in Revelation chapter 7, we heard that same verse, and you did, that God will wipe away every tear. That was the multitude, remember, in the white robes before the throne, wiping away the tears. It was a promise of a sorrow-free existence. No pain, no mourning, no struggles, no death. None of that stuff that's accompanied with death. It is, it is to a degree unknown on this side of heaven. I can't talk about pain or suffering or mourning or crying or death and say, you don't know that. It doesn't exist here. You'd say, oh, you're lying now. That's what we experience in this fallen world. Some of us more than others. In the new heaven and the new earth, it says death will be no more. And death, as we know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it's the great enemy of mankind. But if there's no more death, if there's no more death, and that enemy has been destroyed, that means your body, your soul, the death of families and friends, the death of careers, the death of homes will not be a problem in the city of God. All that will be taken away. All the mourning over that which we have lost, loved ones, marriages, wayward children, all the pain and suffering that comes from living as a sinner in a sinful fallen world, self-inflected pain, Poor choices, tears produced by our sinful behavior, tears produced as a result of people sinning against us. This voice tells us it will not exist. These things will not exist in the new heaven and the new earth. Quite the contrary, the former things, that's this fallen world, fallen people, fallen creation, the former things will what? They will pass away. They will be no more. The vision that John's getting here is one of rest and peace. It's rest and peace. In the Old Testament, even Jews, actually Jews will greet someone today. They'll say, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Rest and peace. Well, what's the rest? The rest is from all the turmoil, all the pain, and all the suffering that takes place from living in this fallen world. And the peace is an everlasting peace. That's peace with God. That's peace with man. That's peace with creation. No longer fighting against creation. It's peace within yourself because you have been united to God in Christ through the Spirit. Shabbat Shalom is what God promises here. It's the, the Jews understood it. It's the most radical expression of the abundance of true life, true joy, so deep, so profound that when we experience it, we will want it forever. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah 35 Verse 10, he said, they will enter Zion. Zion was a name for the new Jerusalem here. With singing, everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. It is a picture, my beloved, of what many of you dream about. A pain-free, sorrow-free, death-free life. You dream about it, you don't experience it now, but this is what God is promising. And he can make that promise. God can, he can say, I will wipe away every single one of your tears because he did the most extraordinary thing on the cross. He didn't wipe away Christ's tears. 
He can wipe away your tears because he didn't wipe away his son's tears. You see, my friends, in order for God to restore the heavens and the earth and and make it our new home, the Son of God had to leave his home in heaven, take on flesh, become a man, dwell, and experience the full ravages of sin on earth. He had to do that. In order to bring mankind into the new Jerusalem, into the holy city of heaven, the Son of Man had to be cast out of the Jerusalem here on earth. In order for God to make a family out of sinners, the Son of God had to leave His eternal triune family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He had to be forsaken by the Father, and He had to receive the due punishment that we deserved for our sin. In order for God to cast out death and provide an eternal Shabbat Shalom, rest and peace for His people, the Son of God had to experience the opposite of rest and peace on the cross. In total, He had to experience all of your mourning, all of your crying, all of your pain, and your eternal death. He had to receive the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, our hell, so that God could wipe away our tears and grant us the fullness of life. It is the great exchange. It is the substitute that you need. Christ dying on your behalf so you can have this incredible promise. This is, my beloved, the immeasurable love that God has for sinful man. It is a love truly indescribable that he would subject his own son to the tears and suffering and death we earned by our sins so that sinners like us, saved by grace through faith, could experience this over-the-top eternal life. A new home, a new family, and a new sinless way of life. John received this vision to give to the church so that the church, listen, by hearing and believing it, and I pray you believe it, would live very differently in this life. He had the vision as given to us that this hope that is so good and so glorious is set before us so that we can live now for Christ rather than ourselves. We can live as Christ lived. He gave his life for us so that we can now live giving our life for him, for his kingdom. If you know that one day if you know and believe that one day every tear, all pain, all mourning, and even death itself will, be, will no longer be a part of your life, if you know that, then I would argue you'll be more apt to suffer and sacrifice now. You won't hold on so tightly to the things of this world. You won't try so hard to make this your forever home. You'll forego homesteading, and you'll say, you know what? If that's what I have before me, then I will be the most obedient, faithful missionary God has ever seen in this place if this hope is true, and I believe it is, and it's set before you. Instead of building our little kingdoms on earth, my beloved, we'd be wise to sacrifice and even suffer for the kingdom that is to come. We'd be wise to follow our Savior. We'd work hard to ensure that we see each other persevering to the end. We'd work hard to see the family of God growing here in Silicon Valley, adding to those who do not know him. 
if this future hope is true, then it has the power for us to live radically counter-cultural lives. Very different than the world. You will not pursue the same things. You will not hope for the same things. You will strive for the well-being of others. You will sacrifice comfort for service. You will desire others to be comforted by God in the new Jerusalem by coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You will tell them. You will disciple them. You will call them in. John's vision is a picture of a real utopia. Not the nonsense that we learned in the 20th century with Karl Marx and not the nonsense that's perpetuated by many progressives today. The real eternal home that man has been striving for for 6,000 years. This is it. This is the future home every heart seeks for but many cannot find. So the last question for you is will you tell them? Will you tell them about this real eternal home? Will you forego your homesteading and become a missionary so that others in your mission field can come to know Christ? Will you give up your pursuit of a forever home in this age so that you can bring others into your forever home and family of God in the age to come? I believe that's one of the reasons that John was given this vision, to compel us to live very differently now in light of the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and the new family that awaits. Let me ask God right now to bless us as a church to live like that. Father, I know in the Western world asking, asking Christians to give up the material things to pursue their eternal home is a, it's a hard teaching and it's a hard pill to swallow. I think for many of us, Father, we've been swimming in, in the waters of materialism so long that we don't even know what it looks like. I would ask, Father, now that by your Spirit you would show us. Show us, Father, what it means to not spend so much time and money and energy seeking the comforts of this place. Show us, Father, what it means to truly follow Christ to sacrifice and suffer if necessary so that our brothers and sisters make it all the way in so the lost here in Silicon Valley can come to know Christ and be part of that family as well. I ask, Lord, that you would make the truth of verses 1 through 4 in Revelation 21 so profound and so real to us that it resets the way we live. Do that for us, Father. We might be the most brilliant body of believers in this area living for your glory, suffering and sacrificing for Christ, and leading people into the kingdom. I ask, Lord, that you would do that for your glory above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.